Welcome to Nonprofit Thursdays, where we educate, elevate, engage, and encourage nonprofit organizations and the people who love them. Today's topic is majoring in the majors, the importance of major gifts fundraising. And I have, wow, boy, what a guest do we have today. Uh, he is a rock star in this space. All he does is navigate with ultra high net worth individuals and he has mastered knowing about that space for luxury brands and for major gifts giving. So I can't wait to talk to him and to share the information that he has. His name is Brian Gonzalez and he's also the author of Build Your Wealth Quotient. He's the co-founder of a company that is doing tremendous work in this area. It's called Wealth Quotient. Welcome, Brian. I want to start by asking you, Brian, what is the importance of major gifts for a nonprofit organization? Yeah, well, it's great to be here with you, Gatsby. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, I think um, in today's uh, day and age, and especially with uh, all that's happening with COVID and the pandemic, um, I think people are realizing, you know, there's one population uh, as the economy goes up and goes down and the, the, the fluctuations in the market, there's one group that is impervious to that and is insulated in, uh, from that more than any. And it would be the ultra wealthy community. And so when we talk about ultra wealthy and ultra high net worth, those are uh, uh, phrases that can be a little bit weird to some to talk about ultra high net worth. What we mean by that is uh, anybody that has a net worth of 30 million and up would be uh, de defined as an ultra high net worth individual. And that would roughly equate to about 5 million in liquid assets, right? So, and so how many people are in that category, Brian? Yeah, so globally, a little over 280,000 people um, and somewhere around 85, 90,000 here in the U.S. So the, the, the numbers fluctuate a little bit, but, but generally speaking, that's what we're talking about. And so when we talk about the importance of, you know, majoring on the majors, uh, you know, so often you hear the, the rule, it's the 80-20 rule, so much 80% of revenue or income or donations come from 20% of the population. And I think time and time again, people are starting to realize, and so I, I'm not original in saying this, but that number is moving more towards 90-10, even 95-5, um, in terms of the impact that um, these major and principal gifts can have on um, on transforming an organization and, and empowering them to, to do the work that they've been called to do. Yes, I, I would definitely agree with that. And you know, it's been said that uh, the wealthy give because of their need to give, uh, as opposed to the need of the organization per se. Do you find that true? You know, I, I, I'd say yes, and I'd say no. I'd say it's, it's different with every individual. I mean, one of the things that we talk about quite a bit and uh, I'm sure we'll delve into more during our time, is that when it comes to the ultra-wealthy, you're really talking about a market of one, right? It's, it's, it's an individual that we're focused on. And so uh, people are different. We're, you and I are different. We have different motivations and causes and reasons for why we do what we do. And, um, and just because we have a lot of wealth, it doesn't necessarily uh, keep that from being true as well. So, so sure, yes, do the ultra wealthy need to give? Sure they do. And, and so many, 
so much of it is optics too. And so when we think about a time, I, I think we're in a, a time that is going to be very fruitful for a lot of nonprofits, especially as they uh, target uh, this particular segment of the population. Think about all of the, the transitions that are happening with businesses and layoffs that are happening, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that the people that own those businesses are necessarily less wealthy. Most and a significant number of those people are making a tremendous amount of money right now. Um, the opportunities that they have, the, the dry powder, so to speak, that they can take advantage of, that they have, uh, that allows them to make moves that cause them to, to make even more money in a, in a cycle like we're in now. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Even though, even though they're businesses, they might be laying people off and so on and so forth. And so there's an optics thing that's at play that I think yeah. uh, so many nonprofits can take advantage of where luxury brands might not be able to. You can't you know, pull up to the factory that you just laid 100 people off in a new Rolls Royce, right? Uh, you certainly well, you can't. shouldn't at least. At least, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might have the money to do it, um, but but and so so part of that opportunity comes just with optics, and I think it provides um, an opportunity for uh, different nonprofit institutions and academic institutions to uh, leverage that time to their benefit in some ways as well. I want to rest on that optics piece too. Does it have to do with also their uh, the way they look from a press and public relations point of view when they give to philanthropy, or is it something else? No, I would say I would say yes, right? I mean, it's certainly in some cases, yes. Uh, I I don't want to say uh, and make a blanket statement that people just give for those reasons, um, but certainly. Um, there are opportunities for people to heighten their profile, so to speak, through um, the philanthropic giving that they um, that they participate in. And so, uh, I think when I say optics, that's a lot of what I mean, right? What does it look like um, during this time for me to be uh, giving in a in a lavish um, way when? you know, the world is in such a tumultuous uh, position. And so certainly I think there will be uh, factors that motivate people to give because of that reason. Doesn't mean everybody is. People give because they really care. They're really passionate sure. about these causes. They they want to see a real impact made. Um, but, but, you know, for for those who are, are seeking to raise money, we we look for every opportunity we can to to help us. So. Sure, we do, and also, of course, uh, those people who want to remain anonymous, uh, they certainly can do so. But uh, the optics are important. Thanks yeah. for pointing that out. Yeah. So you have a book out. Build your wealth quotient. Who is it for, and what is it about? Yes, build your wealth quotient. So, so uh, build your wealth quotient really is. Um, uh, for anyone that is seeking to engage the high and ultra high net worth uh, market and is looking for a, a playbook, so to speak, on what the best strategies to engage this audience uh, is. And so what we find time and time again is there are more and more organizations, regardless if it's luxury brands, financial services, academic institutions, or nonprofits, that are turning their attention to this audience. 
trying to sell a jet to an ultra wealthy individual, trying to, um, you know, bring in that $50 million of new AUM for the private bank, um, trying to raise $50 million for an incredible cause. Uh, but there are more and more organizations that are targeting this audience, especially as we talked about just a few moments ago in an, uh, in an environment where, um, the economy and the markets are in such flux. Um, and this is, again, that audience that is insulated from that. Yes. And the problem is building a pipeline and, and accessing this, this group of, of individuals is extremely hard, is extremely hard. And so we lay out a, a process and a methodology that really is all about data-driven referrals. That's about helping folks to access more of these wealthy prospects, the right prospects in a, in a, in a quicker and shorter amount of time, right? And, and, and here we are in September and we're still upended with uh, COVID-19 and getting to those uh, high, ultra high net worth people that you mentioned is hard and normal circumstances. How much harder is it in this pandemic world that we're living in? Yeah, and I think it, it it's a great question, and um, I think it's it makes it extremely hard. Um, but there are ways that it doesn't have to be so hard. Let me just say it that way: it doesn't have to be so hard. And so often, I think organizations make it more complicated than it needs to be. Um, but in a day when events and in-person meetings are almost obsolete, uh, from our perspective, and again, everything we do is about helping to accelerate um, referrals, it really stresses the importance of, of getting them right and not leaving them to chance um, uh, even greater than before, right? Yes, and absolutely. How else are you gonna connect with these folks? And so, so much about the book and the work that we do is about reframing um, how people think about um, uh, engaging this audience uh, deconstructing the ways that they're currently going about trying to engage the audience and, and quite frankly, showing how inefficient their uh, standard and traditional practices typically are. And again, I go back to, there is a better way. And, uh, and so we're, um, our, our passion is all about how do we help again, help our clients and help the readers reach more people in, 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 less amount of time, right? That's great. Two things come to mind. And, and the first one is, you're my friend and we have an audience here. Yep. Can you give them some kind of a special rate? <laughs> yes, well, we will um, we'll, we'll provide a link for you to send to your audience where they can get uh, the first chapter of the book for free. Um, so they can get that for free. Um, and then, yeah, we'll provide a, a discount for them to get the book at a lower rate as well. Wonderful. So, Wonderful. because it's you, Gatsby. Only because it's you. <laughs> yeah. My friend, I can't say enough about our friendship. Thank you. I, I wanted to ask you also about, because you mentioned this, the some of the wrong ways we go about engaging major gift donors. And uh, what what is it that you can provide for us as red flags? What are some of the red flags that you have seen with major gifts officers approaching major gifts? So I'll say it in two ways. One, one is going about a mistake that people typically make when they 
to try to access these folks and then a mistake that they make once they do get access, if they get access, right? So the first mistake is, uh, is really all about um, the process that they go about for identifying prospects. And the number one issue that we see everyone make, and again, what's, what's fascinating is it doesn't matter if you're in nonprofit or higher ed, if you're in financial services or you're in luxury. All of these different types of industries are trying to ultimately reach the same people, right? They want to reach very wealthy people. Now, certainly they want to reach them for different purposes, right? Some want to sell something extremely expensive. Some want to have these individuals invest with them. Others want to uh, solicit um, funds for them to apply to these great causes that they are are working towards. Um, Regardless of the reason they're wanting to engage with them, what so many of them don't realize is they go about trying to engage them in virtually the same way. And very, very seldomly do leaders from luxury financial services or nonprofit talk to each other about their strategies for reaching these individuals when they're trying to reach the same people. And so I always say it doesn't matter if you are in private banking or if you're in luxury or you're a nonprofit, the process for building a pipeline and cultivating relationships is exactly the same. So, so what's the number one problem? The number one problem that everybody does is they typically operate on what we call an outward in approach. And what I mean by that is their traditional approaches to identifying prospects nine times out of 10 lead them to people they have no existing relational connection to. So let me, let me stop you there because I just want clarity. You're talking about they're using an outward in approach as opposed to an inward outward approach. Exactly. Correct. Okay. Exactly. So, so the outward in approach is is what I think is quite frankly, a waste of time. Uh, The return on time is extremely low. So outward in uh, is where we look for people that have some sort of financial capacity and have some sort of propensity for what we do, right? Everybody's looking for those people. Who are the people that have capacity and who are the people that have propensity for what we do? Um, and the way they go about identifying those things are, are you know, wealth screens. So let's screen our database and see who have who has uh, a greater uh, capacity than we than we thought. They buy lists of the wealthiest people in Dallas or New York or Mumbai or San Francisco or wherever it is, who are the individuals that have given to related causes, right? And so here's this collection of people that we've found these names, these lists of people that have capacity and we believe have some sort of propensity. And then they hand these names to their fundraisers and say, have at it. And the number one problem now is the fundraiser has to figure out how do I get in front of these people? And figuring out that accessibility problem is extremely challenging. And there are gatekeepers and there are so many hurdles. And so there is this assumption and so many bad strategies are built on bad assumptions. And the assumption is it's the fundraiser's job to figure out how to access that person. That's so wrong, isn't it? It, it's, It's terrible because their talent really is about building relationships and securing the deal, right? It isn't you know, wading through all the different channels to try to connect with somebody. And so that's a false assumption. And so, um, so that's the number one challenge. Now, an inward out approach, which we advocate and talk about in our book and with our clients is, is instead of starting with these people that are out there in the world and seeing how do I get in front of them? 
it's reversing the process. It's saying, let's first identify our best referral sources. Who are our best referral sources? Our lexicon, we call them hubs. If you think about a hub and a spoke model. Mm-hmm. And if you map out the relational networks of those hubs, of those referral sources, what people are shocked at is that they are filled with more prospects than you could ever imagine that have financial capacity and have a propensity or affinity for what you do. And the accessibility problem has already been solved. I know how to get to them. I get to them through my hub. Now that's and, part of- And part of that hub too, I, I didn't want to step on your line there, but I'm excited. Part of that hub is certainly the board of directors of an organization that should be plugged in to uh, some of these resources, correct? Yeah. You make a really great point. So one of the things that we work with a lot of folks to do is to help them optimize their boards, because so often what happens is the board feels underutilized, the fundraising team feels like they're underutilizing uh, the board. And, um, you know, for instance, one of our higher ed clients for years had been working with their development team and had been trying to do peer screenings, which everybody knows, you know, uh, uh, and, and was, were so disappointed time and time again when the names they took to their board, they couldn't help with. They couldn't help with. Now, here was the slight, uh, they were just a little bit off in their strategy. They were, they were taking an outward and approach to prospects. Here are people in the city that are wealthy, that we'd like to get to know. Do you know any of these people? And more often than not, their board didn't know those people. We came in and we actually did relational mapping around those board members specifically. And there was a development committee of 12 people. We identified 400 and some odd uh, high and ultra high net worth and billionaire uh, individuals that they were directly connected to over a three month period of time. We coached them how to ask for the introduction to get really organized around the process, to make sure things weren't falling through the cracks. And in three months, they got confirmations for over 120 introductions. Uh, wow. And so, you, oh my goodness, that's invaluable. Yeah, so it was a just a slight change and it made the biggest difference in the world. And my partner uh, always says that big doors swing on small hinges. So <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it was a very big door that's that swung on, on that small swing. So. So that's the first mistake that people tend to make. The other one I would say is, is just very simply, they sell too quickly, right? So once we get access to these uh, very wealthy people, we sell way too quickly. And part of what we coach our uh, clients on is how to, uh, it's just some principles that you have to earn the right to be heard, right? That um, we really want to take interest in who these folks are. And so I would say those are the two uh, mm-hmm. biggest mistakes that we see folks make. And, and and of course, in the philanthropic world, we don't use sales. We we say we're giving the yeah. donor an opportunity to make an impact. And so uh, when you are talking about financial services, when you're talking about those others, those luxury brands who want to uh, access this uh, very ultra high net worth uh, space, so they're using sales. We're using philanthropy terms like giving an opportunity, investing in uh, the mission and all those kinds of things. But I have to tell you about a misstep that took place where uh, someone uh, called me after thinking they had done their research 
and uh, offered me uh, a chance to have a jet. And I said, why are you calling me? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was clearly was not in that class. class. Yeah. <laughs> so well, the, you, go ahead. I was just going to say, you bring up a point, right? So much about this process is how do you position yourself well for success, right? How do you position yourself well for success? And to me, that's a perfect example. Now, you might not be financially qualified to buy a jet. Maybe you are, and we just uh, uh, you, you've kept some of this hidden. I can tell you, no. So, but, but I, I don't think people um, have oftentimes thought through the ramifications of the actions that they take and how that either positively positions or depositions them for success. So, for example, we get um, folks that in the coaching that we provide where fundraisers or sales folks will vary in our, in our coaching call say, isn't it great? Hey, I want to let you know, I got a chance to meet my prospect this week. We're like, well, that's great. Tell us about it. Well, I saw them at this event or uh, we ran into each other randomly. And so I, or I was at this club and they were there. And so I went and I introduced myself. Isn't that great? And in most cases, we've had to say, absolutely not. That's actually not great. Yes. And, and what else? And, and they're confused. And they say, well, isn't, why isn't that great? I, I met them. I gave them my card. And what people fail to realize is that these, these ultra wealthy people are bombarded all the time by folks that want something from them. And so that's great that you got to shake that person's hand. That's great. You might've had a five minute conversation, but likely not in every case, but most likely that person now views you as just somebody else that wants something from them. Exactly. Had you waited, even if it took a year to a year and a half, had you waited until you had a introduction that could have been made from someone that they trust. If you had come through the referral, you would have been elevated. They would have viewed you completely different and you would have been positioned so much better to be successful uh, to sell them. Right. That, and oh, so, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So much sense. So I want to switch to something uh, quickly, Brian, because I know we'll soon be out of time and I want to pick your brain on this. We know that the ultra high net worth folks are in so many ways, just like us. Yeah. And in so many ways, they are not like us. Yeah. Can you talk about how they're not like us? What are the things that they do? And I'm taking this because, by the way, you, I attended your boot camp. And are you still holding those? We do occasionally, but most of those are just private for our um, for our clients. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So if you just touch on some of those uh, touch points about who they are, what they like to do, what kind of experiences that will help yeah. people know how to cultivate them. No, I, I appreciate that. And I think that part of that goes back to what I said before, that they're an audience of one, right? And so... So much of what it uh, means to engage these individuals, and I'm not saying anything new that anybody doesn't already know, uh, but this is why I think these uh, so many nonprofits have prospect research teams because the reality is uh, uh, engaging someone around the interests and passions that they have is so important to your ability to cultivate what ultimately is the number one thing chemistry and trust. Why does someone give to your cause? Yes, they have to care about it. Yes, you have to be a reputable organization. 
Um, but ultimately they give because they like you and they trust you. And the way you build that sort of uh, rapport and you accelerate chemistry and trust, and this goes back to the mistake I talked about, um, is um, by engaging them around those things, right? By taking genuine interest. One of the things we preach all the time is if you want to be interesting to someone, you better be interested in them. Preach it. Right. And so, so one of the things about this person that I genuinely need to take interest in, here's the key that aren't self-serving. That isn't about what my organization is trying to solicit them for. Now, obviously I want to know where the overlaps are, but I want to engage this person and genuinely take interest in the things that they're interested in. And those interests vary greatly. Uh, it, 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 it greatly is different. I will say this. One of the things that we say all the time is that wealth is an amplifier, right? Wealth is an amplifier of what's underneath. And it amplifies your, if you've got good character before you have wealth and you're, you know, you give money to the things that you care about sacrificially, even if you don't have a lot and you end up creating the new hottest widget or, you know, coming up with this company that ends up just skyrocketing and doing well and you sell it and you make a tremendous amount of money. Those are the people that become philanthropic because that's who they were. That's who they were um, before they made their money. If you're a, a if you're a jerk before you uh, have money, you get money, and wow, does that become a man? And I know a couple of those. Yeah. Uh, thank God, it's just a, a few. But I wanted to uh, something that you said uh, a couple of years ago that I've always remembered, and you said that fundraising for major gifts is not establishing a friendship. It's establishing a relationship. And what's the difference between the two? And how does it get fuzzy for some major gifts operators? Yeah, I think it comes down to the aim, right? My goal is not to build a friendship with these folks. I want to be relational. I want to be, I want to interact in a way that's not transactional, that really is transformational, that I care about who this person is, that I really do seek to understand their story. You know, one of the things that we say at Wealth Quotient is, is every net worth has a narrative, right? There's a narrative behind it. And I think the best fundraisers are those people that are excavators of, of human, of that narrative, of the sacrifices that went in and the story behind who this person is, and they seek to connect with that. You're not being disingenuous to say, I want to be... Uh, extremely relational. I want to be, I don't want to operate transactionally. I want to take genuine interest in this person. Um, uh, but that's different than saying I'm trying to build a friendship with them. Friendships do yeah. happen between uh, gift officers and donors, but those things can't be forced. And, and I guess I would, I would say a st uh, there's a story of one of our friends and clients who's uh, one of the most successful high-end uh, realtors in the country and he said, when you, part of what he's seen folks do is when you try to dress like them and when you, you become an ornament, right? You just become an ornament. And uh, because you don't have the money they have, you'll never will. And, Absolutely. Boy, and, I never heard it that way before. We become an ornament when we try to look and dress like them, and, but we're not like them. We do not navigate where they navigate and neither do we have their money. And they might invite you to be in their world at times and, and, and whatnot, but, but, but we're not them and that's fine. <laughs> that's right. 
but we need them. We absolutely need them. Be genuine and and be very authentic in your desire to, uh, I think people resonate with authenticity and, and, uh, and the more authentic you are, I think the better, the better your chances are. Yes. People can see through inauthenticity. And, and again, this is nothing new. So much of what we do with our clients is making common sense, common practice, right? Making simple things easy to execute on because it doesn't have to be as complicated as it, as it can be. And common sense ain't so common. I've heard somebody say that. I think it was a coach of a basketball team. Now you preach. (laughs) So, yeah, I can preach a little bit on that, too. As a matter of fact, uh, in one of the organizations that I've worked for in the past, um, there was a major gifts officer who uh, shared with me one day as we were talking how he was picking up the laundry and uh, ordering flowers and doing other things for one of our major gifts people, uh, donors, and I had to put the kibosh on it. That was inappropriate. And uh, sometimes major gifts officers get into some muddy waters. Even uh, there was a woman I was speaking with uh, through a training, and she said, oh, yes, when I see Mr. X, uh, he, he bursts out in a smile, and then he just kisses me on the mouth. (laughs) at that point I stopped smiling (laughs) and she says he's 92 years old and he's harmless I said but that is inappropriate please stop it so there are some boundaries that we need to be very very aware of in this space uh, on the major gifts officer side as well as on the donor side for sure yes amen yes So now I want to uh, pause for a minute and ask you another question oh how do the wealthy feel about knowing that we are researching them? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think it depends on um, their familiarity with kind of fundraising to the extent that they sit on nonprofit boards and whatnot, right? If if they're familiar and they're they're already philanthropic and they um, they sit on boards. I think most people um, get a sense that are in that world that there's research being done on them by nonprofits. It's, I think, the fundraiser's job to try to make that seem uh, uh, not so obvious. And so what I mean by that is um, creating coincidences. We talk a lot about creating coincidences. Um, I would say there's two things that we help uh, our clients do, right? One is accelerate access. The second is to unlock chemistry and trust once they get access. The way that we help them to accelerate access is through this very systematic referral process. But what they do is they're asking their hubs that we talked about these referral sources um, for specific introductions. That's the key here, right? You have to ask for a specific introduction, generic, uh, if, if, If your listeners hear nothing else I say today, um, the key to successful referral process is asking for specific introductions, right? So I don't say, Gatsby, is there anybody else you know that I should talk to about Wealth Quotient? I say, Gatsby, I'm trying to connect with Rick, Jane, Jim, and Nancy. Do you know those folks? Can you make an introduction? Uh, When I ask that way, you, you can easily execute on that. 
When I ask you the other way, it puts too much pressure on you. Now, the only way I can ask for specific introduction, this is your point about research, is if I do research around who they know. But I never want to go to my hub or my referral source and say, hey, I did some research on you. You want to ask questions. Caspi, here's some folks I'm trying to connect with. Do you know them? I don't make assumptions that they know them. These are part of the the creating coincidences. And it's the same thing when it comes to uh, accelerating chemistry and trust. I need to do research on prospects, right? Um, I need to know what their passions are. I need to know what their interests are. The only way I can do that is to, um, is to do the research. But the way that that goes in my interaction with them is by asking great questions, right? Asking great questions that I know the answer to and I know how to interject in the conversation. Absolutely. And, and some ultra high net worth people, because they are more sophisticated, for lack of a better term, in this space, if a person comes to them and begins to talk about uh, something they're not interested in, the first thing they think is, this person has not done their research. They haven't done the research, exactly. And when you, what we oftentimes find that happens is when um, fundraisers ask their hubs for introductions to the prospects that have been connected to them through the research, oftentimes those hubs who are ultra wealthy in their own right say, is there any research that um, shows that they have an interest in what we're doing? Right. So um, they already know this research process goes on uh, in some cases, um, but we don't want to, from a, a pragmatic standpoint, throw it in their face that we're doing if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It definitely makes sense. The book, by the way, again, is called Build Your Wealth Quotient. And uh, Brian is offering that with a special for those listeners uh, that are listening today and uh, beyond. And so uh, as we are kind of pivoting now and taking a page out of Inside the Actor's Studio, which I love that show, (laughs) uh, I have three questions to ask you. Okay. First question, what makes you smile? That's a great question. You know, personally, what makes me smile is when the Miami Dolphins win. I'm a huge <laughs> Miami Dolphins fan. Uh, they haven't won much in the last few uh, years, but we're, uh, we, we've got some good draft picks. And I know half of your audience just went silent right now. Yes, you better believe it. You loyal person, you. <laughs> I am a, I'm a big football fan, and it makes me smile when my Dolphins win. That's great. And and what's your favorite sound, Brian? Ooh, that's a great question. What is my favorite sound? I'll give you two. One is I love the ocean. So I love being on the ocean. Uh, I love the water. But weirdly, I've spent so much time on planes. I've been to 50 some odd countries and I'm usually on a plane four or five times a month. And uh, it is very calming to me, the sound of a plane engine being sitting on a plane. And I, I instantly fall asleep when I'm on plane. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's I know what you mean about that. And then the last question is, when all is said and done, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, thanks for asking that, Gatsby. Um I, I think I want to be um, known as someone that Uh, loved and cared for people well, regardless of um, their color, creed, orientation, whether they agreed with me or not. That um, uh, A mentor of mine once said that the true definition of tolerance is how you treat people that think differently and believe differently than you do. So 
hopefully I'm, I, I would love to be remembered as someone that uh, treated people well, regardless of, of that. So. You're a very special person, Brian. I appreciate you as a friend and I appreciate you as a human being who cares. Thanks so much for joining us today. The book is Build Your Wealth Quotient. Uh, go after it. It's on Amazon, Brian. It's on Amazon. Yes, it is. And Great. we'll provide a code also for folks to, to buy it directly through our site as well. So thank you again, my friend. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All You're right. the best. Okay. I can't thank my guest, Brian Gonzalez, enough. Boy, was that a lot of information that we could use. And uh, don't forget his book, Build Your Wealth Quotient, and he's going to make it available to us. And also, don't forget to visit our website, www.thegasbygroup.com. See you next time. <music>